Welcome to Booksmart, a podcast where we read and share books that have a positive influence on our daily lives. Whether it's self-help, success, or something fun, we're here to help you read your way to a better you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Em. And this week we're reading The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters by Priya Parker. In The Art of Gathering, Priya Parker argues that the gatherings in our lives are lackluster and unproductive, which they don't have to be. We rely too much on routine and the conventions of gatherings when we should focus on distinctiveness and the people involved. At a time when coming together is more important than ever, Priya sets forth a human-centered approach to gathering that will help everyone create meaningful, memorable experiences, large and small, for work and for play. Drawing on her expertise as a facilitator of high-powered gatherings around the world, Priya takes us inside events of all kinds to show us what works, what doesn't, and why. She investigates a wide array of gatherings, conferences, meetings, a courtroom, a flash mob party, an Arab-Israeli summer camp, and more, and explains how simple, specific changes can invigorate any group experience. The result is a book that's both journey and guide, full of exciting ideas with real-world applications. The art of gathering will forever alter the way you look at your next meeting, industry conference, dinner party, and backyard barbecue, and how you host and attend them. So Melissa, why did we read this book? Okay, first of all, I'm obsessed with this book. (laughs) I first heard about this book, I want to say, through Dan Pink's newsletter, and we'll read Dan Pink later, huge Dan girl over here. Yep. But... What stood out to me about the book itself is that community has always been a really big part of my life. I've really valued being a part of different groups and to be not just a participant, but an active member. But honestly, I don't think I'm really following through enough on my desire to be a good host. And I've tried a few things here and there. I actually host a meetup.com group and I try to do different things throughout the year with my own friends and family, but I wanted to understand how I could be a better host within my own community. And then I forced you to read this book with me <laughs> after I sung its praises. So um, why were you excited about reading this book other than the fact that I begged you to? <laughs> well, some of my best memories and highest experiences of joy have come from gathering with people that I know and love and also making new connections with others at really well-hosted events that I've attended. So I know how amazing it feels to attend a gathering done well. But on the flip side, I've also experienced that real disappointment and like a feeling of emptiness when a gathering has the opportunity to unite people or to make meaning in some way, but it just flops. And so along the way, I've just noticed that having a clear purpose does contribute to an event or gathering being better. And so does hosting. And that's, I think, where I was really curious to read the book as a host. I would like to have more confidence as a host in creating gatherings that feel transcendent in some way, even if it is just a simple night with friends. Mm -hmm. Same. I think the last note I want to share about this book is that I used to work in corporate event production. And so I think I also had a curiosity as somebody who has planned events for 10,000 people, how did this woman, Priya Parker, who facilitates in-person gatherings, how has she learned from that experience where she's doing this professionally, not just as a social host? So I was also just very curious to hear her take on things. Mm. So a lot of really interesting topics and perspective led me to pick up this book in the first place. So 
let's open the book and dive right in. So do you want to share the table of contents from this book, which is how we're going to move through this episode? Sure. So chapter one is decide why you're really gathering. Chapter two is closed doors. Chapter three, possibly the best chapter title ever, don't be a chill host. Great title. Four, create a temporary alternative world. Five, never start a funeral with logistics. Six, keep your best self out of my gathering. Also another excellent title. Pretty pithy titles yes. here. <laughs> Love them. <laughs> chapter seven, cause good controversy. And chapter eight, accept that there is an end. These different chapters are the phases or the steps that Priya recommends that you take for any gathering, whether it's a conference or a birthday party. So we thought it made sense to move through them the way that she outlines them in the book. But I do want to say in the book's intro, after she shares that this is organized in the sequence that she uses to walk friends and clients through creating meaningful events, she says, I believe that anyone has the ability to gather well. And I love that she dispels a lot of these myths up front because I think being a good host doesn't have to do with your personality or what you have. I think it's about being thoughtful and intentional. And whether you're introverted or extroverted or have a job title or the money or not, that has no bearing on the amount of thought that you can put into something. So I thought that was a really important key takeaway from the intro of the book. I loved that little list too, because reading those items that everybody has the ability to gather well, you don't have to be an extrovert. Those two really resonated with me. It set it up so that I believed that it this was really possible for anyone to do. Mm-hmm, which I loved. And she also mentions that instead of thinking about events as logistics and floral arrangements, she wants to challenge us to think of gatherings as a human experience challenge. So again, it's not so much about creating the perfect dip or creating the perfect ambiance or just talking about the logistics, although there is a place for all of that. It's more about the meaning behind the gathering. Why are you getting people together? What is the ultimate goal behind this? And again, that's something anybody can do. You do not have to be a certain type of person to be a good host. Yeah. So let's jump right in with chapter one. Decide why you're really gathering. This, I think, is almost the heart of Priya's whole argument with So many events going on, we've fallen into a routine of, of course we have conferences, of course we have birthday parties, all of these things. But she says, there are often so many good reasons for coming together that we often don't know precisely why we're doing so. So a lot of these events are just on like an autopilot or an annual repeat. And we don't stop to question a lot of the traditions around different celebrations, weddings, birthdays, conferences, meetings. They just kind of happen because they've always been there. And This is a big takeaway that I had is she says a category is not a purpose. So like birthday party is a category, but it's not a purpose of an event. Mm -hmm. It still doesn't answer the question, why are we coming together? Mm -hmm. So she says, you know, is it to gather your closest friends and to reminisce over the past year? Is it to look forward? Is it to spend time with everybody you've recently met? Or is it to just share your time with a close group of friends? Mm -hmm. They're all very different from each other. Yeah. I love the example she shared of a baby shower, how Mm -hmm. in the past it was preparing the women of the tribe to be mothers. Whereas now the way she and her husband approached their own baby shower was that it was preparing them as a couple to be parents. And so when they changed the purpose of what their event was, they changed the shape of it and the intention and the meaning behind it. And I love that example where it came up because her husband asked if he could come. Right. 
And at first, just internally, she thought, hmm, it's always been only women. Right. And then she really had to question what was their purpose, the two of them, versus what have other people decided the purpose of their own baby shower is. Right. So that's such a good example of baby shower is the category. And maybe for some people, it does mean a gathering of women. But for Priya and her husband, she decided it was about the two of them preparing. So you have to have a purpose when you gather, not just a category. Right. She also says that specificity is crucial. So the more focused and particular the gathering is, the more narrowly it can frame itself. And she says like nothing can do it all. You can't have one event that is about every single thing you could hope to accomplish. So you really have to commit to one thing and then don't force the rest. Right. I also love that she said about specificity is that sharpening the gathering enables people to see themselves in it. It's like we have more clarity about why we're going to be there when we truly understand what it is for. This reminds me a lot of advertising mm. where if you imagine this was a classic book from or a classic quote from a sales book I read a while ago. If you saw a billboard that said, have allergies, call this number, like maybe you would do it. But if it said, do you break out in hives every time you eat fruit, <laughs> you're definitely going to call. Right. So although sharpening the purpose could seem exclusive, in fact, it really just makes things clearer for everybody. It's clearer to picture. You know why you're there. You know why some things or people are not there. It's a good filter for decision making. Right. And we'll talk later about why exclusivity is good mm -hmm. in this case of yeah. gathering. Absolutely. I think one more thing I wanted to talk about before we move into chapter two is that she said a good gathering purpose should be disputable. Mm -hmm, I loved that. That was something that I had a hard time wrapping my head around at first. Yeah. But she mentions that if you have a gathering filter, it can help you make decisions. So the big example I remember her talking about is for a wedding list. Mm -hmm. If you decide that the purpose of your wedding is to celebrate your love with everyone you've ever met, that wedding list is gonna look a lot different from a purpose where you want to just spend time with the people who mean the most to you. Right. So in that way, when your purpose is disputable, mm -hmm. you now have a very clear filter about making decisions about the guest list or where to spend money. Mm -hmm. But I had never thought about gatherings in that way before. Yeah, I really liked that too. She had a few tips on how to craft the purpose of the gathering, which I really liked. And first, zooming out, which we have sort of talked about and then drilling down, asking why, and then thinking what larger need the gathering is going to address, and then thinking of what you want to be different because of the fact that you gathered. I really liked that last one. Mm -hmm. I loved you just brought up the keep asking why concept. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine your meeting, your even just a small get together at your apartment, if you ask yourself, well, why am I inviting over to see friends? okay, well, that's not very specific. Why do you want to see friends? Like you can keep asking why and that'll help you get to a purpose. Mm -hmm. Really my main takeaway from this chapter is that category and purpose are not the same. Yeah. And we so rarely think about purpose, mm -hmm. I think, when we're gathering. It's so true. I don't know how many events I've gone to where the host, or if I've been the host, I'm guilty too, where I've really considered like, what is the purpose of my gathering? Right. Same. Yeah. I have a small group called the Crafty Coven. And the point is that I have a lot of friends who are also solopreneurs, creative entrepreneurs, and we have a lot of things that we like to do like crafts <laughs> or even just editing photos if we're photographers. And we do all of those things alone. And if we come together around, in this case, my dining room table, we get to do them together with other people. And so we have that 
element of connection and something that we would typically do alone. And so I think that has a really clear purpose because it's craft night as the category, but it's really intentional about you as somebody who works all day by yourself to come together and spend time with other people Yeah, where you might not want to just include anybody in the guest list. It's really specific about who's coming and why you're getting together. Right. The final thing that I liked about this chapter, which I think is worth saying, is beyond these questions, decide why you're really gathering and commit to a purpose and um, figure out what meaning you want to make as a result of your gathering. She says, you can also just do a simple casual hangout. If you don't have answers to these questions or you don't want to find answers, you can just do a simple casual hangout and that is allowed and not every gathering has to be something greater. That gave me some comfort that I didn't need to just start planning like every movie night or game night with friends with meaning and purpose. Yes, I think that's a great point. Like if you want to have people over to watch The Bachelor, yeah. the point is just to hang out. Yeah, that's And that's fine. totally fine. I would say maybe the thing to think about is don't invite somebody who wouldn't enjoy the show. Right. Which we can right. talk about in a little bit with Closing Doors, but... It's not that the meaning has to be like the meaning of life. Right. It just has to have a direction. Right. And hanging out is a purpose too. Yeah. So you're allowed to want to see your friends. That's yeah, a purpose. exactly. We're not saying you can't see your friends. Just, <laughs> you know, if you're having a larger gathering or something that is themed, or I would say maybe in particular, if it's a category like birthday party, conference, those are probably the ones you want to take a closer look at, not just happy hour. And in the next chapter, which we're about to get into, she talks about, the matter of size. And so if you're gonna have a handful of friends over, just hang out. But when you start to have a real number of people on your hands, it's helpful to think about the gathering with intention. Mm -hmm. So with that, let's actually move into chapter two, which is close doors. So Priya says, inviting people is easy, excluding is harder. What really struck me about inviting is easy, excluding is harder is that we have a hard time saying no to people, but she says excluding is kind. When you exclude other people, what you're really doing is choosing the people that you do invite as your focus and priority. And this reminds me a lot of what we talked about in episode two about the big leap where we said this enlightened no was a big concept for you. And we talked about no to one thing is really yes to another thing. So you can go back and listen to episode two at booksmartpodcast.com slash two. But in this case, we are talking about not inviting just anybody to the party, quite literally, and instead making your focus on the people who are there. So, yeah. Well, and I love too that the guest list is the first real test of your gathering's purpose because it forces you to put your ideals into practice by determining who is going to contribute to that purpose and who really would be detracting from it. Mm, that's a great point. I think a lot of people after saying, I'm going to have a gathering would jump to what food is going to be there? What's the venue? And those do come up later, but that's a great point about why this is chapter two. Why is this the immediate next step? And that guest list has such an impact on the purpose. I think that's such a great point. And she asks some really pointed questions that I think are fabulous about how to exclude well, but also generously, because when we choose not to invite certain people, we make more room for the people who should be there and who are able to contribute to the purpose of the real gathering. And so we can ask ourselves who not only fits, but helps fulfill the gathering's purpose. 
Who threatens the purpose? Who do you feel obliged to invite? And who is this gathering for first? I love those questions because you can really begin to see clearly in your head the people that should be there and those who, like, if not threatened, just don't need to be there. Mm -hmm. A good example I remember is if your goal is remotely around meeting new people and encouraging other people to meet new people, she used the term safety net friends. Yeah. If you're allowed to bring people you know, you will naturally gravitate toward hanging out with people where you feel comfortable. We all do it. Mm -hmm. But instead, if you make sure that it is actually a mix of new people and you don't have any of those safety net friends, it's much easier for people to interact with each other. So I think that was a great example about even if you only bring in a couple of safety net friends, it's going to throw off the entire vibe of the gathering. Mm -hmm. I also liked what she said about a large group like that, or even a small one, is that when you over-include, when you let people bring the person they already know, not only do people sort of depend on the people they already know, but over-including, having so many people there can keep connections shallow. So we have less opportunity to really make new deep bonds with new people because we're spread sort of so thin. She gives an example in this chapter about somebody named Bob. Yeah, Bob. Who came to the party. And I, I don't even remember who Bob was, but the concept that I took away from this chapter, I just personally named keep away your Bobs. Yeah. Because those are the people who are going to change the vibe of your entire gathering, whether it's a safety net friend, or maybe you have a tight knit group and one person wants to bring a new boyfriend. And actually, this is my real life example. So I recently hosted a gathering in my apartment and the goal was for a couple of different groups of friends of mine to get to know each other. It was a game night. And I said no to a plus one empowered by this book, yeah. even though everything about me was screaming in pain Amazing. about saying no to a close friend of mine. But I knew that we just didn't know this new person very well. And I already had this goal of connecting friends of mine over a shared interest in mm -hmm. board games and getting to know each other. And I knew that he was a Bob. And so I had to keep out my Bobs. Brava. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, was, it was challenging. It's kind of silly to recap because it is not a life or death scenario. It feels like it though when we're living that moment and her lovely friend has asked to bring their new partner and yeah. we don't and the, want them. <laughs> and the fact is the new partner is great. Could be great. It yeah, is not actually right. about that person at all. It's just about the purpose of my gathering. Yeah, that person's not fulfilling your purpose. Exactly. In the future, if we all knew this person better, it could work out. Again, this is not a personality Bob. Right. This is just a purpose, Bob. This Bob is new to almost everybody in the room. And so it didn't make sense, but- Yeah, it changes the dynamic. Exactly. So I think that's important about this closing doors concept. It's not about who you like or you don't like. Mm -hmm. And she actually had a quote that I loved where she said, specificity doesn't have to mean narrowing to a point of sameness. Mm. The goal is not to just get a bunch of mm -hmm. like people in the room. It's just to have a very clear filter about who meets the purpose of your gathering. Mm -hmm. But it's not to just create a group of, you know, people who just, what's the term I'm looking for? The yes men. Mm -hmm. It's not to have a group of yes men. It's just people who achieve your purpose. Now, in this chapter, she also talked about some magic numbers, which I thought was interesting. She says there are certain magic group numbers to create a certain atmosphere or to support different goals. So for example, she said six people is very intimate. You can have high levels of sharing. 
even discussion through storytelling. And you can imagine six people fit very comfortably Mm -hmm. around a dinner table or around a living room. So with this amount of people, you can all be in one discussion. Mm. Even once you get up to the next tier of like eight to 12, you can have a lively, pretty inclusive conversation. There's just enough diversity, not too many people, but it kind of breaks out into multiple groups. Right. I think 12 people is kind of hard to have in one conversation. And in fact, she says 12 to 15 is a group that is, it's still small enough to build intimacy and it's large enough to offer diversity of opinion. And it still allows for that quotient of mystery and intrigue and constructive unfamiliarity because there probably will be people in that group that not everybody knows really well. Mm -hmm. What stood out to me about the 12 to 15 group is she calls it the table moment. Right. So you could still have everybody around a conference room table. Right. I'm imagining this is more of a meeting. This yeah. is kind of like the startup critical number. Yeah. Right. They also call it, I think, the pizza number where you could still order pizza for that whole group. Not one pizza, obviously, right. but you could all sit around and enjoy pizza together. And also critically, 12 to 15, one moderator could still handle that number. Mm-hmm. Then it kind of gets up to 30 and to quote directly, it feels like a party. Yeah. (laughs) Even if it isn't, but it's definitely too big for one combo. It's very buzzy, a lot of energy. Mm. It's very different from 12 to 15, very different from six, especially. Right. In 30, there are lots of little conversations happening, but it's much too large for a single conversation to be happening. From 30, she actually jumps up a little bit. So She kind of lists 150, but it's about 100 to 150, where there is a level of intimacy at the whole group level because you're all still in a shared experience and everyone can still see each other. So this is, I think, kind of wedding-sized for a lot of people, not for everybody. But if you imagine being at a wedding that is maybe average-ish sized, not too small, you do still see everybody in a room. So there's still kind of an energy between everybody. And actually anthropologists also define 150 as the max size of a tribe. So that's according to Robin Dunbar, one of the anthropologists mentioned in the book, that's the number of stable friendships that you can maintain as a human. So that's kind of the critical number that we can have in our lives. And so maybe there's some relationship between that number and then this 150 intimacy at a whole group level moment. One of the things that I liked that she said about the concept of closing doors is that if you are struggling with how to exclude generously, it can be helpful to blame size. And so you can think back to these magic numbers of six, eight to 10, 12 to 15, 30, and then 100 to 200, if it's helpful for you. Mm -hmm. And before we talk about the where, which is the final part of closing doors, there's also a group size she calls tides of humanity. That's like sporting events, really huge stadiums, concerts. And the goal of events like that is not intimacy. Right. Instead, it's like this energy of a huge crowd. And so I think that's worth noting too. I don't know if many listeners are planning those. If you are, that's incredible. Yeah. But you can imagine in your mind the difference in energy between six people, 150 people, 100,000 people. It's very different. And of course, the venue is different. So that's the final aspect of this chapter on closing doors is not just the guest list, but the venue. So the place is critical, right? The venue you choose really sets a tone. And Priya says, the choice of venue is one of your most powerful levers over your guest's behavior. A deft gatherer picks a place that elicits the behaviors she wants and plays down the behaviors she doesn't. 
or to shorten it and quote Seinfeld, the room does half the work. Oh, love it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's so true because it's really easy to think about how different behaviors come out based on a location. Think about the formality of a courtroom versus the casualness of a living room or even the like slightly buttoned up feel of a conference room or a conference. Mm -hmm. And even within venues that are in the same category, like bar or restaurant Mm -hmm. or even conference room space, Mm -hmm. the difference in feeling between them is vastly different. Right. And imagine you walking into a bar without it sounding like a terrible joke. Like (laughs) the vibe is immediate. You feel a certain way instantly when you walk into a room. So choosing the right venue is critical. And a couple other points she makes is that the density of the room Mm -hmm. really matters. And I had never really thought about this so specifically before, but she says the size of the room is important and how close people are. And she's got a great little chart in the book, but she has different categories, sophisticated, lively and hot. Yeah. So hot is like a club. Yeah. You want to be packed up in each other's space, (laughs) up into club. But if you are at a different type of gathering, maybe a networking event, it could be the same number of people, but you'll want the room to physically be larger because you don't want them to be as close to each other. Yeah. An arm's distance feels Mm -hmm. right. And maybe you've noticed sometimes gatherings are held in the wrong sized space. Oh yeah. And it feels very awkward when there's a huge space and there aren't very many of you to fill it. Instead, if you imagine having a room exactly the right size, it just feels more comfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I loved that this also gave me clarity on why people gravitate to my kitchen when I'm throwing a party Mm -hmm. at my house, because people want to feel that tight sense of energy at a party. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when they go to the kitchen, not only do they want the guac, but they're also (laughs) seeking out a smaller, more intimate room to participate in a conversation with somebody. The last part of this chapter I wanted to talk about is the fact that she mentions moving rooms. She says, Mm. if you move rooms, you create a journey and a narrative. And I think what most people will relate to is when you have a cocktail hour before a reception, or if you have a pre- event and then you have the main Mm -hmm. affair and the act of opening doors and walking into a different room can really create an experience. Right. Or even in a conference, you're moving around to different rooms all the time to create a different type of experience. And the main speaker room feels very different from maybe an expo hall of different booths and maybe the dining hall feels very different or even on a college campus, different rooms on a college campus feel very different from each other yeah. to serve a different purpose. Or at a dinner party when the conversation over dinner has sort of ended, a few people have left, and then you transition to the living room and have after dinner drinks and a new type of conversation starts to take place. Mm-hmm, exactly. And what I love about that example is it's not that you have to book multiple venues. Right. It could be as simple as you're saying, like transitioning from eating dinner at the table to hanging out in the living room. Even if you're like me, I have a studio apartment. I could still move people three yeah. feet to the left. Right. <laughs> so you don't have to have even two different sizes. Thinking back to the intro, does not matter the size of your house. It just matters the intention and the moving around can create a certain feeling or a journey. Right. One of the elements of this or something this chapter has made me think about is she says, don't let logistics override your purpose. So just because you need to fit a certain amount of people into a room doesn't mean that you should stop thinking about why you're gathering your group. And it made me realize that I really want to change one of the groups that I co-host, which is a small group of women that networks. We're also creative entrepreneurs. There's a theme to my gatherings. And typically we have these at a central location for everybody to drive to, but it's in a restaurant that's fairly 
noisy and we have fairly intimate conversations. And so it's really not the right place, but we're letting the logistics of, well, it's halfway from for everybody to drive to override what we really want to be doing, which is having a place that feels creative and intimate and inspiring and quiet for those conversations. One time we had that meeting in one of the photographer's studios before she moved to a different state. And that felt more magical because we were in her creative space. It was only us and we sort of got to make it our own. And so moving forward, I wanna think about ways that I could move that group to meet somewhere else. I think that's both a great example and a great takeaway from the Mm -hmm. book to try something that felt more like the magic space. Mm. Okay, that wraps chapter two and moves into arguably the best title of maybe any book I've ever read, which is three, don't be a chill host. And I think we all think that we can be a chill host. We think we can just get away with this. And I think we think it's what people want. Exactly. So let's maybe define the chill concept. Mm. So she says chill is the idea that it's better to be relaxed, low key. And her whole argument is that this is not the right way to host. And chill hosts assume that leaving guests alone means that they'll be left alone. But the fallacy that Priya pointed out I had never thought of is really what you're doing is that they're left to each other. And the mercy of certain other people that will fill the vacuum of the space you've left. Exactly. It's almost the way she describes it is called generous authority. Yes. Where you want to protect your guests. You want to keep them connected. You want to equalize them. This is not about being a big production. It's not be a high maintenance host. But if you do not create a certain kind of environment and don't outline rules and don't have intention in place, it's just all going to go to chaos. Yeah. So if your goal, I love this example. She says, if the goal is to have people meet somebody new, give them the instruction at the door to find at least one new person to talk to during the party at any time. Mm -hmm. So I love that example because it's not complicated, but it's a very clear direction And most of all, I think it gives people permission. Yeah. Like, at least for me, when I go to a party and I don't know anybody, I just assume all the worst in my mind. I'm like, oh, everybody has friends. They all know each other. I don't want to approach. But if I know we've all been given the instructions to go up to somebody and say hello, I feel empowered. Yeah. So because somebody was not a chill host and gave this specific instruction, I actually feel more at ease. Yeah, I really like that she says that you should acknowledge that you do have power as a host and abdicating that power often fails guests rather than serves them. And she says, who wants to sail on a skipperless ship? Like once your guests have chosen to come into your kingdom, they want to be governed gently, respectfully and well. And so do them that service. I like the skipperless ship quote because you would never want to board a ship without a captain. Right. I think you expect the host to set a certain scene. Right. And again, she's clear. Don't be a dictator. Don't Mm -hmm. abuse the power. Mm -hmm. Don't be mean about it. This is just about creating a clear set of expectations, I think. And that if you have a goal, you can't expect that people are psychic. Right. I think this comes down to relationships too. Like a lot of times when you're dealing with a friend, a family member, or a partner, you can't just expect them to read your mind and know what you want. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. (laughs) So of course, upfront, they should know why you're gathering. You should have made that clear in inviting them to the gathering. But I also think it is your job as the host to make sure that things are facilitated. Yeah. And to keep that going throughout the gathering. She says authority is an ongoing commitment. And so sometimes people think they can take charge early on once and done and just sort of assume their work is done. But people want 
to have a sense of being hosted and being guided throughout an entire gathering. I think that's one of the most important parts of this chapter. People mm. do not want to be left alone. Yeah. As she says, guests didn't sign up to be at the mercy of your drunk uncle. <laughs> I forgot about that quote. I loved it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's so important, though, because this concept of being very chill, very low key, very, oh, this little shindig, mm. like, oh, this just happened. That's not really what people want. They do not want to feel directed every single second. But I think I feel this way all the time. When I know what's going on, I feel more comfortable. Absolutely. So I think just generally the takeaway here is people should know what's going on. And it's your responsibility to make sure that things are moving along in a way that makes sense for your gathering. Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and original ad-free audio shows. Whatever your passion, your interests, or favorite authors, there's a perfect listen for you. The Audible app makes it easy to listen to your books wherever you are, at home, in the car, at the gym. Even if you switch devices, you'll never lose your place. With our exclusive Booksmart listener offer, you get 30 days of membership free, including a free book to get you started. In addition to our favorite self-help and personal development books, you can also find anything from biographies to business. To claim your free membership, visit audibletrial.com booksmart. Okay, so chapter four is create a temporary alternative world. And this is based on the idea that people often want to attend gatherings that are different or we want to sort of mix it up at our own gathering, but we're not sure what to do. And Priya says, the best way to truly mix it up is to design your gathering as a world that will only exist once. So the main takeaway I had from this chapter is that we should be using rules to create a unique feeling. And to your point about the one-time gathering, she says, by drafting a kind of one-time only constitution for a gathering, Mm. a host can give rise to a fleeting kingdom that pulls people in, tries something new, and yes, spices things up. (laughs) So to your point, she does talk about in the beginning of this chapter that a lot of online articles about, quote, spicing it up are about like office parties, conferences, and different kinds of things you can do to make them a little more exciting. But she says excitement is not the goal. It's creating this temporary alternative world. And the way that we do that is through rules. Very unexpectedly. Very unexpected. And I think what's so fascinating about this is her premise of rules equals temporary fun fantasy land. Not that every party is a fantasy, but I would never have considered that basically this whole chapter is about why it's so important to create rules about your gathering. Now, rules don't necessarily mean like don't hit your neighbor. We're not talking about basic human kindness here. But I really liked her example of Dinner en Blanc. Yeah. And it's a global dinner party series hosted all over the world. And you have to wear all white. You have to bring a table and chairs. You have to bring your own full meal. It has to be couples a man and a woman, you don't have to be dating, but you end up going to a meeting location and then they walk you over to a secret location. You set up everything, you enjoy dinner together, and then you don't leave a trace. And you set up your tables as one long row, right? With men on one side, women on the Mm -hmm. other side. And you are also only allowed to have like white beverages, right? It's like champagne, Mm -hmm. white White wine, wine. Mm -hmm. white soda. You're not allowed to drink beer or, yeah. It's very specific. And it started off as a personal invitation in the late 80s, but now it's become this global phenomenon. I know it takes place in New York. I tried to go this year, but I wasn't available on the date. I'm on the wait list for next year. But they had it a few years ago. A friend of mine went and it was on the pier in Tribeca near an old apartment of mine. And so 
they all set up a long series of these tables down the whole pier, all of them wearing white, fancier white attire, not like a white t-shirt and jeans. And this is full of rules. You must wear white. You must wear nice attire. It must be a man and a woman. You must bring all of your food. You can't eat off paper plates. It has right. to be actual plates and glasses and the drinks like you mentioned. So these are the rules we're talking about. And you can see, hopefully visualizing, that this is quite a stunning display. Yeah. And it's very unlike the way that most of us eat dinner most nights. Yeah. But it creates a really memorable alternative world yeah. just for an evening. Yeah. Just reading about it made me absolutely want to attend it because it seems like such an extraordinary experience. Mm -hmm. What stood out to me, which is just a personal thought, is that rules as a term, I think, has this connotation mm. of like, oh, I must follow the rules, don't want to follow the rules, cramping my style, whatever. But I think that rules bring a certain comfort because mm -hmm. when there are rules, I know that I'm doing it right. Yeah. Like there have been so many other gatherings where it sounds silly, but I haven't known what to wear. Mm -hmm. And I've been worried that if I wore something or showed up too early or too late that I would not fit in. But with something like Dinner en Blanc, you know exactly what to wear and what to do. And so you have full confidence that you're going to fit in. Yeah. And I think that's what I'm talking about with this comfort level, with the rules, is that there's no ambiguity. There was no chill host who right. set this up. You knew exactly what to do and where to be. And you know that you belong, which is the ultimate goal of a lot of gatherings. Yeah, you have that immediate feeling of incredibly shared community, mm -hmm. which is so elevating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She also mentioned that phones can create an alternative mm -hmm. reality. And it's one that all of us hosts have to deal with. And maybe you've seen this. I've been to a few no phone weddings or yeah, I no love phone that. ceremonies. I think it's really great. You can't make all events phone free, mm -hmm. but I think even if part of it is, like I've seen the ceremony be phone free and then the reception, the phones are back. Even that I think is a really nice way to be present for part of an event. Yeah, yeah. I could see having just a small gathering where we all decided to just put our phones in a basket for the night. Mm-hmm. And I know I personally make a conscious choice to not be on my phone when Same. I'm with others, but not everybody does that. And to be fair, there's no contract that says that they had to. Right. But I think it is nice to make a conscious effort. And actually Priya and some of her friends do this I am here day where the whole premise is that one person makes the plans. That's a rule. If you're going to join, you have to be there the whole day. It's like a 10 to 12 yeah. hour day. You can't just go for part. That's another rule. You have to turn off technology. So yeah. no phones unless it's directly part of the day. Mm -hmm. So if for some reason they were doing like a mobile scavenger hunt, yeah. sometimes you do need a phone. You agree to be very present, fully engaged with the group. This is the one that I think is challenging. They commit to one conversation at meals. Yeah. So when they're sitting down together, the entire group of, I think she said six to 10 people, right. they're all in one conversation. And the last rule was to be game for anything. And she said that these I am here days worked because the rules created a feeling that it was enough just to be there yeah. because you were here, you were present. And right. I had never heard of anything like that before. Yeah. I love reading about that too. I think with rules, when we know what they are too, we get to decide if we want to opt in. And so choosing yes to something makes us commit to that gathering. And we have the option to say no. If it's not our cup of tea, we don't have to go to do it. But if we say yes, then we are committing to that purpose, which I really like. That's a great point. This isn't the way that your parents or teachers set rules in the past where it didn't matter if you wanted to do it. You're a kid. Mm -hmm. Life is life. This is a choice where you have RSVP'd yes to the gathering, knowing full well what it was. 
So in that way, it's not like anybody's really going to rebel against the rules because you've agreed to go. You're there by your own choice. Yeah. And I loved that she said, we tend to associate rules with uh, formality and a stiffness. But in the I Am Here days, we were just talking about, they found that rules helped create an intimacy. So the rules about spending the full amount of 10 to 12 hours together and Mm -hmm. not having the phones, all of it just led them to feel closer. Yeah. So- that whole concept of rules are formal, rules are stiff, in this case was totally the opposite. Yeah. And like what you alluded to earlier, that when you know what the deal is, we can relax into that. That's such a nice feeling. It is. I think rules get a bad rep. And this chapter helped affirm that when used kindly, rules can really help create a nice alternative world. So chapter five is never start a funeral with logistics. And she opens this chapter by describing a funeral where everyone has filtered into, uh, I forget if it was a church or some other sort of place where they were holding the memorial. And there was like a buzz of people talking about the person who had passed. And there was a real feeling of community and camaraderie and love. And then the person leading the service came up to the microphone and said, Oh, afterwards, we're going to have some food over at X location. It's a little bit tricky to get to. So see me afterwards if you need to uh, receive some directions for how to get there. And they basically just shattered the feeling of love and emotion and community that had built up in the room prior to the event kicking off with those logistics. And I just thought that was a really powerful example. Mm -hmm. I think... Another aspect of this is this concept of priming. Yeah. So there's this uh, colleague of hers in conflict resolution that taught her this 90% rule. She says 90% of what makes a gathering successful is put in place beforehand. So it's this priming or even before the event starts, people are already getting into this headspace of attending a funeral. And then the social contract that you've all put together, the way that guests have certain expectations of you as the host and vice versa. If you get up there and everybody has mentally primed themselves for a funeral and you start talking logistics, it totally doesn't match. And I think is a huge challenge. And the point she's making here is you have to know as the host, where do things go? What have people experienced leading up to the event? But it's also tricky because you don't want to end with logistics either. And we'll yeah. talk about endings in a bit. But you, there's this buildup that you don't want to squander. You have a real moment of kicking off a party mm-hmm. or an event of some kind. And priming plays a lot into that. And I have a short example, which is last year I decided that I wanted to throw a dance birthday party for myself. Amazing. So I wanted people in the room that were going to dance. So I had a clear purpose. It's like, we are going to dance all night. And then I closed the doors. To, I didn't invite people that I knew were not going to dance or at least like shuffle around for some of the night good naturedly. And then leading up to the event, I created a Facebook for it and I had like a clear title and description. People knew it was a dance party. And then on Facebook, I called for song requests, like friends were posting YouTube videos of what they wanted to dance to. I spent hours with a good friend creating playlists so that we had like a pre-dance list that people were getting in the zone, like when they were coming into the house. We had like a five-hour dance playlist. We had a couple hour like cool down dance playlist. And so people knew before they came into my door exactly what they were getting into. And we were ready to carry the entire event out. And so 90% truly of what made that gathering successful was that everyone came to my house ready to dance. Mm -hmm. And what was the first thing when they walked in 
that they experienced. So it was a room full of people who were already moving around and then like me probably running at them and hugging them and Mm -hmm. already dancing. So in other words, they've been primed. Yeah. And then when they arrived, it matched their expectations. Unlike the funeral where they expect to have this full experience of atoning and really celebrating somebody's life. And that mismatch was not there for your party because your first actions matched the priming. Right. That's what this chapter really is about, is the priming leading up to it and then making sure the first thing you do doesn't ruin all that hard work. Right, right. There's another example I loved from um, Jill Soloway. She's an executive producer. And she has this thing called the box. So the box is this opening ritual that connects the larger team to one another. And she says it clears people's minds and creates a passageway of sorts into rehearsal. And before I describe it, I also think that passageway is the priming, right? You're transitioning somebody from their normal life into your alternative reality. So the box is a physical box. It comes out, they put it on the floor. It's like a crate. People start clapping and chanting box, box, box until somebody gets up onto the crate and anybody can get up there from PA to actor to staff member, executive producer. And they talk about anything, problem, breakthrough. They purge out anything prior to the workday, whether it's something very exciting or just something silly or something very serious. And what I love about this is that Jill is creating a true passageway into her shooting day, into their work together. And I've never heard of anything like that before. And people apparently who come on to set with them really remember this. It stands out to them and it's such a unique experience. Yeah. How could that not bind you as a group? And how amazing to do that before every single workday? I think the last thing that stood out to me in this chapter is that Priya said, the talented moderator understands that even a panel is not a standalone conversation. Mm. It exists within the context of a gathering. She says the moderator focuses too much on the panelists and not enough on the audience. Mm. And the woman she says who does this really well is Esther Perel, who writes a lot of different books. And she, Esther, will often turn to the audience and say, how many of you can relate to this question or who also wonders about that? So she's transforming this conversation from just the people up on the stage to the audience as well. I actually saw Esther Perel speak last year at a conference and she did exactly that. There wasn't a mm. panel, but it was a session and she led a Q&A at the end of her session. And every time somebody asked a question, which is a brave act to do, she raised the question with everyone in the room so that we all felt connected um, and we all felt like we were being spoken to also. At first, I couldn't figure out why this section was in this chapter, but I think part of it probably has to do with priming. If you imagine you're attending a panel on a certain topic, you might have certain curiosities about the topic. I think making sure as a panelist, when you connect with the audience, you're giving them a chance to participate and to think about it too, instead of letting them just tune out. Yeah, to feel part of the gathering. Mm -hmm. Exactly. They are not just blind ears. There's a reason why they're not just watching it on YouTube. But even if they are with Esther's strategy, you could still involve somebody listening on the YouTube video later, which I think is very powerful. Mm -hmm. Should we move into chapter six? So next up, we have keep your best self out of my gathering. And a quote we can use to kick this one off. She says, with strangers, there's a temporary reordering of a balancing act that each of us is constantly attempting between our past selves and our future selves, between who we have been and who we are becoming. So as you can maybe guess by the title, we do not want your fake Instagram persona to appear at the gathering. We want real you. And 
what really struck me about this is not just, hey, we want you to be authentic. There's also an acknowledgement that it's often easy to talk with strangers because they don't know anything about you. And so you can be whoever you want to be. And maybe listeners have had this experience where you'll meet somebody brand new or meet somebody at a bar and it's kind of easy to open up to them in a way that sometimes it's harder to share things with friends or family because it may go against the identity that they've crafted of you. And so sometimes it can be hard to change and then to tell people about it because you might worry about how they'll react. I loved the examples that she used about that as far as a dinner party goes, that it's really tempting to think about crafting a group conversation about something positive. But instead she found that the best themes for a group conversation were not sweet ones, like a topic about happiness or romance, but rather they were ones that had a darker side, like fear or borders or strangers were examples that she gave. And it's easier for us to talk about topics like that, that poke at and request our realness than it is for topics like happy or happiness or romance that sort of require us to stay on the surface and not go very deep and not make stronger connections with those around us. Mm-hmm. I think something that's interesting about the, specifically going back to the friends and family concept, because they know who you've been, they often make it harder for you to try out who you want to become. So they'll say phrases like, oh, but you're not the singing type or why would you want to be a doctor when you hated biology or, oh, like, I just don't get stand up. Why are you spending time doing that? And those are the kinds of things that might make you change the stories that you tell about your day. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of this best self thing is just feeling like you're in a safe enough place that you can share what you're up to, to be the self that you want to be. Right not just not being the, like the phony who people want you to be self. Right. And to do that, we, as the hosts have to also do that as well. We have to be able to share honestly and authentically too, and sort of show the guests how to do that and that it's safe to do that. And that it's well-received and create that in the room. Mm -hmm. My main takeaway from this chapter ended up being her recommendation to bring the stranger spirit to your gatherings. So we mentioned earlier that we often feel more comfortable talking to strangers because they're not going to judge us because they don't know our past self. And so you're not failing to live up to any of their expectations. So if you can bring this stranger spirit to your gathering, there's no reason for you to not be honest with a stranger. There's no need for you to put on a front and be more than you are. And there's no reason for you to diminish yourself based on somebody judging who you have been in the past. So I think that's a good takeaway from this chapter. Love it. Okay, so let's move into the next chapter, chapter seven, which is to cause good controversy. And Priya says that we can make things fruitfully controversial and make good use of what divides us in order to add both energy and life, as well as create a clarifying feeling after our gathering. And this is something that I hadn't really thought of in terms of small social gatherings, but I can see how this would be incredibly useful in, say, an office meeting when you're trying to figure something out. Mm -hmm. I think it was helpful for me to hear her definition of good controversy. She says, good controversy is contention that helps people look more closely at what they care about when there's danger, but also real benefit in doing so. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was important that she pointed out harmony is not necessarily the highest purpose of a gathering. It is certainly a potential purpose, but sometimes you want to re-examine your values, your priorities. Sometimes it can help communities move forward in their thinking, or it can help you grow. 
And I think her real point in this chapter that she says outright is that good controversy doesn't just happen. It needs design. It needs structure. Mm-hmm. And to your point, this is not a dinner party. Right. This is probably some kind of meeting with a purpose, with a desired outcome. Maybe you want to get parties on the same page. Mm-hmm. But I think this concept that it needs structure. You cannot just put people in a room and expect them to come to an outcome. Right. And as a last thought on controversy, good controversy is worth introducing into your gathering only if you recognize that real good will actually come of it. So you'll have to get through the messy middle, which will be the possibly contention, like asking difficult questions, possibly having hard conversations. But if the result of that will be a resolution that's positive and clarifying, then that is makes good controversy worth it. Mm-hmm. Well said. That brings us to the final chapter, chapter eight, which is accept that there is an end. So most gatherings just kind of fade away. People slowly start leaving. The red Zolo cups are on the floor <laughs> <laughs> and it's just over. But how you end things just as you start them really shapes the attendee's experience. And I liked the example she gave where improv actors or opera singers, they have to create an ending. They can't just leave the stage. They have to imagine how they would exit in a meaningful way. And so must you as the host. Like you created this whole temporary reality for them and it's your responsibility to help them transition back to the real world. Right. And there's also a real opportunity to like make good on your promise of what this gathering was, because if you don't end it, you sort of lose the opportunity to take stock of what happened as a group, or maybe you needed to be able to gauge your participants buy-in in the topic that you were discussing, or talk about how you will carry what you have done together forward, or even just make a memorable close so people feel a sense of completion over what just happened. One of the examples I love from the book on that was a professor who welcomed every grad student who was dropping off their final thesis at his office with a plate of tequila shots. I love that example. It would have been so easy for these people to just drop their thesis off to absolutely no fanfare in an empty box in an empty room. But imagine how much effort and work and blood and sweat has gone into these thesis papers. To celebrate with them is such a unique moment. And the fact that he chose to mark this ending with a shot, a literal toast, a literal toast, I thought was so special. And again, not hard to do. There's so many different themes throughout this book of creating rules, having purpose, but a big takeaway I want listeners to hear is that that doesn't mean it has to be hard. Yeah, It doesn't have to be a huge production. It can be as simple as sharing a shot at the end of a journey. Yeah. I love it. Now, before we end, I have an interesting question I wanted to pose to you, Em. Okay. So after we read through this book, thinking about us coming together for our podcast, I wanted to ask, is our podcast a gathering? Is two a magic number? I think, (laughs) yes. I think it's a gathering in a couple different ways because the two of us are gathering and then we're also gathering, hopefully, a much larger community around us who also have a love for reading these books and improving their lives and talking about it. And like, that's really why we're gathering is because like, we both love reading these books and talking about them so much, (laughs) so much. (laughs) And some of our friends don't want to do that with us constantly Mm -hmm. all the time. So that's why we're gathering. And yeah, I I think, I think, yes. What do you think? I do too. I think both of us had the same vision that this is not about just putting a podcast episode out, but really wanting to help 
gather people and to gather ideas and to encourage more people to read and to encourage growth. And I think what sets our podcast into the gathering category is the fact that we do have a purpose. Mm. Our goal is to help people improve their daily lives, whether it's with something fun or something like a gathering of Mm. their own. I think we have a pretty tangible goal to help support people in that kind of personal development. And hopefully one day we'll have thousands of thousands of listeners and we can all create a community around reading these books at the same time together, which I think will be very special. And thinking back to the closing doors, you and I both know that a lot of our friends, not all of them, but many of them don't want to read and discuss these kinds of books. You and I do. So we have our own mini gatherings about them. And so that's maybe gathering number one, the pre-gathering. Yeah. (laughs) But then just being able to share this kind of conversation with listeners and maybe encouraging them to share these books with their Mm. own loved ones or their own community, I think we're creating a gathering, just a virtual one. Love it. Yes. So let's close the book on our reading of The Art of Gathering. And Em, how are you going to carry this book with you into the future? Okay. So I have, I mentioned that I have two groups that I co-host and I mentioned the second one, which is a group of women entrepreneurs. We have a name that just happened by default, which is a little bit embarrassing to say, Ladies Talk Business and Boys. (laughs) And we started off as Ladies Talk Business and we realized that after we talked about the small businesses we were running or the ways we were growing our careers, we just ended up talking about boys a lot. So my goals moving forward are to figure out a way to actually name that group so that it relates to what our purpose is. And maybe we'll, we will vote and decide that we're just going to stay ladies talk business and boys. But I also want to think really consciously about the next event that I host for that, probably in February or March. And a big part of that will be finding the right room to do it in, because I just don't think it is the sort of restaurant bar where we've been having those conversations. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me about your group is that I don't know if it's realistic to assume that a group would get together and only talk about business and nothing else. Mm. Because I think part of being a solopreneur is that you have a life outside of the business. And so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to talk about business and your life outside of the business because there's a balance. But I do think it's great that you're considering the venue and maybe just prioritizing a productive business conversation. And then it's almost like where you move the rooms. Yeah, It's almost like there's two parts of the gathering. Yeah. One that is more structured, where I imagine you guys sitting around a table, like maybe actively giving feedback. And then afterwards, like you retire for a drink. Right. And then you do talk about life outside of work, including boys. Yeah. I love that. That's a fun idea. I'm going to have to play around with changing locations yeah. when I think about our venue. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how about for you? How are you going to carry this book with you? So- I regularly resolve to host more events. And in the past, I've had a lot of insecurity around the size of my apartment. Mm. I live in Brooklyn. I live in a studio. It's not very spacious. But what I've come to realize is that nobody has a big apartment in New York. I've been here for enough years that this is not as groundbreaking as it, it's not groundbreaking at all. I don't know who I'm kidding. But I am very comfortable attending gatherings in other small apartments I've never walked into a single event and thought, hmm, this person's apartment is too small. I'm going to leave now. Right. In fact, we want a smaller space to feel Mm -hmm. that intimacy. Exactly. So what I realized is that it's just thinking, not my space is too small, but how many people can my space fit? 
And I actually came to realize that I could fit 10 people if I bought folding chairs. I think we're, Which sitting, is what I did. we're sitting in our home studio at Melissa's apartment right yes, now. You my could apartment easily is more fit more than 10 people. So we, we fit 10 pretty comfortably in the living room. And I think this sounds so obvious, but buying the folding chairs was a pretty life-changing yeah. aspect to my hosting because I was able to push some of my furniture around, set up these additional folding chairs. And I realized my limiting thought about my apartment is that there wasn't that much seating. Mm. So I bought two additional dining chairs and I bought four folding chairs. And now I feel like I could and have recently host more people in my apartment. Amazing. So in the new year, I want to host more people in my home because I like that kind of intimate gathering. I like game nights. I like potlucks. Mm-hmm. I like that kind of atmosphere. But I also, on the total opposite end, I want to have more hangouts. Like mm. not a huge meeting with purpose, right. but I want to do, I'm going to say monthly happy hour, but my accountability on this is not going to last. But I have a lot <laughs> of different friends from different past employers or friends of a friends. And a lot of them I think would really get along. And I would like to facilitate cool people I know meeting other cool people I know. So I thought if I did a happy hour in a central location where I just, maybe the first, I'm making this up, but the first Thursday of the month, it was always in the same place and I could just invite whoever. Anybody could show up. Maybe in time, they would start inviting their cool friends too. And I thought the goal would be, you know, to catch up on our lives, but to also meet fun new people. Meet new people. So that was a resolution I had for this year. Love it. I've been saying I would do it for a whole year and I've done it once. And so now you've said it on air. Now I've said it on air. And we've already talked about accountability in episode one. So (laughs) there's a lot of weight on this. Exactly. In episode one on the four tendencies, (laughs) we talked about accountability as a major component for me as an obliger. We'll see if you, the listeners, hold me accountable to this, but maybe not monthly as in 12 times, but let's just see if I can make one happen. But that's my goal. That's fantastic. Post more. Yeah. Gather more. Gather more. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so as always, we want to leave you with something that you can take back into your daily life from this book. And we have a couple ideas for you. The first, of course, is to plan an event or tell us about one that you attended that had a really clear purpose. Two, maybe let us know if you notice any of these guiding principles in place at your next event Or if you want to, think about a gathering that you host or one that you're involved in. Maybe it's a weekly office meeting, a meetup group, a book club, or something larger like a conference or community event. Which principle in this book stands out as one that your gathering is lacking? How could you maybe affect change in your gathering to make it better using this principle? We would love to know. And don't forget, don't be a chill host. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Thanks for joining us this week. To learn more about The Art of Gathering, visit booksmartpodcast.com slash three. We've also included highlights from this episode if you'd like a quick recap. If you've read the book, we'd love to hear about it. Tell us if you implemented any of Priya's strategies or if you've attended any gatherings with purpose. Email us at hello at booksmartpodcast.com. Lastly, we do have a quick favor to ask. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope that you did, we'd love to ask you for a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Reviews let Apple know that great listeners like you are enjoying our show, and that helps us expand our reach in search results. Plus, we really appreciate the feedback. We'd love to know what you'd enjoy hearing more about in the future. Thanks again for joining us on this week's episode of Booksmart. Until next time, happy reading.